1: The American political circus is based on a two-party system and has been since the mid-1800s. Republicans and Democrats each put up their candidates for election to various offices, and the American people vote for who they'd like to represent them. However, other factions have formed over the years to catch those who feel that neither party deserves to represent their interest. From the Green Party to the Working Class Party to the Alliance Party, these splinter groups have become little more than a distraction. They do earn several thousand votes each election, but they don't amount to much overall. Almost nothing ever changes. But one group did want to change things, and they almost did, until the Bears moved in. It started when Yale student Jason Sorens wrote an article for a niche political publication. Jason was a libertarian who believed in small government, fiscal conservatism, and free market capitalism with almost no oversight. Sorens fashioned himself something of an activist, and he sought out other like-minded individuals to join him. He was starting a brand new enterprise that would establish a community for people who shared his ideas. His concept was centered on the idea of secession, but rather than separate from the United States, he would force a state to bend to his will. He called it the Free State Project, and it was started due to Sorens' frustration with the Libertarian Party. More specifically, its inability to get any of its candidates elected to office, so he turned to the past for inspiration. Like other extremist leaders who had come before him, Sorens believed that an extreme act of migration was necessary to achieve his goals. He planned on overtaking the politics of a particular state and, in turn, swaying the country toward libertarianism. After an unsurprising, undemocratic vote, The Free State Movement settled on New Hampshire, thanks in large part to its live-free-or-die mentality. A subset of followers formed an offshoot called the Freetown Project and moved into the small town of Grafton. Now, Grafton had a modest population of just over 1,100 people before the Freetowners moved in, a number that jumped up by another 200 rather quickly. They saw its low property tax rate and lack of zoning laws as the signs of a perfect libertarian utopia. The Freetowners, mostly made up of white males, believed that they were liberating Grafton with their wild new ideas about how the government should run and how budgets should be spent. Instead, locals greeted them with hostility, and that might have been for a good reason. You see, the Freetowners had come with yurts, RVs, and shipping containers, which became their homes. One of the leaders of the movement, Larry Pendarvis, had a strange agenda he was dead set on seeing through. It included organ trafficking, old-fashioned duels, and the right to organize fights between folks without a home, presumably for entertainment and betting purposes. He also supported what he called consensual cannibalism, something he referred to as a victimless crime. But not everyone shared Pendarvis's views. He eventually left Grafton for Texas. But the Freetowners didn't want a free-market system that embodied their libertarian ideologies, either. All they wanted was a smaller budget and lower taxes, which went about as you might expect. Grafton suffered dearly after its yearly $1 million budget got slashed to about three-quarters of that. Violent crime went up, while road repairs went down. Domestic violence spiked, the Senior Citizens Council lost its funding, and town employees could no longer afford to heat their homes. As some people put it, the town went feral. Which probably explains what happened next. Farmers started noticing that livestock was being taken from under their noses. One woman's kittens were snatched and eaten while she was still playing with them on her lawn, and neighbors began getting strange visitors on their porches. These weren't religious preachers or even Girl Scouts selling cookies. They were far more menacing. Grafton, New Hampshire had been invaded by bears. Black bears, to be exact, which normally didn't bother people. However, now the animals that had been keeping themselves in the woods were taking over the town. But why? Well, one theory is that the lack of funding for animal control and bear-proofing garbage cans led to the incursion. Another is that the influx of outsiders encroaching on the bears' domains resulted in them seeking other places to unwind, like swimming pools and decks. Some people even fed the bears, which may have kept them coming back for more. Whatever the cause, the bears did more than wreak havoc on Grafton. They drove the Freetowners apart, with many fending for themselves and leaving their neighbors to figure things out on their own. And soon enough, the Freetown Project simply died off. Well, more like it was absorbed. The free state movement that had started it all took control as more and more Freetowners opted to live without regulations or rules. And Grafton has shared its town with the Libertarians ever since. But you might be wondering when all this occurred. Clearly, a town overrun with anti-government cultists seeking political freedom couldn't happen today, right? Wrong. This didn't happen in the 1700s or the 1800s, or even the 1900s. The Free State Project was started in the early 2000s and is still going strong 20 years later. Although their numbers aren't as high as they had hoped, apparently some people find the idea of living in a town full of potholes and wild animals to be, well, unbearable. To start living yours. Let's get into it.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
1: It's no secret that during World War II, Adolf Hitler turned to some unconventional methods to try and gain an edge against Allied forces. There's potential evidence that the Nazi Party itself was inspired by occult influences beginning in the 1920s. Books, movies, and television shows for the past seven decades have speculated as to the efforts Hitler might have gone to in order to create his master race. From mad scientists to religious artifacts to Satan worship, the Third Reich didn't just rely on tanks and guns to carry out its abhorrent agenda. It attempted to reach over into other worlds and even other dimensions for a leg up. For example, Heinrich Himmler, one of the main architects of the Holocaust, was an unflinching zealot who spent much of his time on extracurricular projects to help the Nazis, one of which inadvertently ended up as the plot of the third Indiana Jones film. Himmler was on a quest for the Holy Grail, hoping to use it to give himself superpowers. But Hitler and his stooges weren't the only ones seeking out supernatural means for success. Because across the ocean, in the state of Maryland, a young group of Americans were doing the same thing with one singular goal, to take out the Fuhrer with a little witchcraft. William Seabrook, born in Westminster, Maryland in 1884, held a number of jobs during his 61 years on Earth. He was a journalist and adventurer who wrote about distant cultures, he had served in World War I with the French army, and most famously, he was an occultist. In fact, he was good friends with the prior addition to our Cabinet of Curiosities, Alistair Crowley, who stayed with Seabrook at his Maryland farm in 1919. However, in 1941, the eccentric Mr. Seabrook had found a new cause to get behind. He saw what was going on in Germany, with Hitler's forces advancing across Europe, And knew something had to be done. This was almost a full year before the Japanese would bomb Pearl Harbor and thrust the country into war. Seabrook, along with a cadre of young hopefuls, gathered at a cabin in the woods belonging to a man named Charles Tupper. The group had brought with them numerous tools with which to carry out their spells, including tom-tom drums, nails, axes, a mannequin, and a Nazi uniform. Oh, and lots of rum. They fit the uniform on the dummy, And drew a toothbrush mustache under its nose giving it a familiar appearance they had just made an effigy of adolf hitler what followed next was documented by life magazine which had tagged along for what it dubbed as a hexing party seabrook and his compatriots were preparing to carry out a massive voodoo incantation on hitler in order to stop him from across the pond as seabrook himself wrote in a newspaper article in 1943 Let the doubters laugh at such things if they want to. I have lived with voodoo priests and felt myself the awfulness of their strange powers. Personally, I want no part of the danger that lies in such sinister explorations. They propped up their Hitler effigy in a chair as Seabrook coached one of the attendees on how to play the correct rhythm on the drum. Then the hexing began. Each person took turns hammering nails into the dummy's heart, all while clamoring, you are Hitler. Hitler is you. The woes that come to you, let it come to him. There were also death dolls made of fabric that looked like the Fuhrer, which the participants shoved pins into throughout the night before burying them face down in the swamp outside. Hitler, who had been rumored to be paranoid and superstitious, was also said to have believed in black magic. Perhaps all the damage done to the dolls and the mannequin might have given him a headache, or a bit of heartburn, maybe a sore arm well, it's doubtful. But Seabrook, Tupper, and the others knew that the effects of the incantation wouldn't be felt immediately. They wanted word of their Hex-Hitler event to find its way to Europe to inspire others to carry it forward as well. The war continued on for another four years after that, so it's probably safe to say that their efforts weren't of much use. But buried somewhere in the Maryland woods are a bunch of pin-riddled death dolls that look an awful lot like Adolf Hitler, Proof that, even though they didn't get any closer to stopping World War II, they did put an end to a lot of their own stress and anxiety that night. Unusual? Absolutely. But also more than a little curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com.